Black holes aren't only the most extreme objects in our universe in terms of mass concentrated into a single location and curvature of space-time. Black holes are also these remarkable objects that we can think about down at very small scales, but that also affect very large scales in the universe. The singularities of a black hole, whether spinning or not, might only be the size of something you could hold in your own hand. And yet, when we look at the event horizon of these supermassive black holes, they're on scales of like the solar system. When we look at the environment in which black holes form, though, we're talking about the galaxies that they exist in. There's so much to untangle and unpack about how these tiny little but very powerful engines affect both small and large scales in the universe. What are they doing? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. There are many different aspects of black holes that we can explore, from their in-spiral to their merger, to how a merger of galaxies will virtually ensure that something is going to happen that's interesting to each of the two supermassive black holes inside. Do they merge? How do they merge? And as central engines of these new merged galaxies, uh, what effects do they have on the environment around them? And how does the environment impact the activity of these black holes that we observe? Here to help us untangle this is Dr. Adi Ford of Stanford University, expert on merging black holes and their connection to the galactic environment around them. And I'm so pleased to welcome her to the program. Adi, it's my pleasure to have you here and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I'm really excited to, to be here today to talk more about black holes. Yeah. So to me, you know, I think of black holes and I think of basically the two varieties they come in. I think about like these little tiny stellar mass black holes that are like a hundred solar masses or under like, okay, yeah, you had a big star, the star died, you know, probably it went supernova with a core collapse, but maybe it direct collapsed or something exotic. Uh, and maybe it grew, maybe it accreted stuff, maybe it merged with another black hole, but it's not that big. And then, on the other hand, we have these supermassive ones that are millions or even billions of times the mass of the sun that mostly reside at the centers of galaxies. And I don't normally think of these two populations of black holes as being connected, but at some level we, we know they have to be, don't we? Yeah, I mean, definitely I would say understanding and studying the physics of the lower mass end of you know the black hole regime will give you a lot of insight onto the physics of the supermassive black hole regime um, and you know some people may think it's easier to actually study um, the the lower mass end regime you know the stellar mass range within our own galaxy because they're closer and so it's easier to um, to detect the mission associated with them um, and then another way to think about the question that you asked, which is kind of going in a 
complete extreme opposite direction <laughs> um, is kind of the question of, well, how did these supermassive black holes form, which I think is kind of one of the biggest questions to date surrounding supermassive black holes and actually is not the area that I'm an expert in. But um, I can say that, you know, one of the hypotheses is that you have a lot of stellar mass black holes merging with each other, right? Until you get some sort of more massive black hole um, that might be around 10,000 solar masses or so that can then eventually become a supermassive black hole. So I do think the two populations are connected in a lot of different ways. Um, that being said, I do mostly, you know, spend my days thinking about supermassive black holes. Um, and they're, you know, they're, they're definitely, I, in my opinion, the more exciting, <laughs> um, the more exciting part of the mass regime, just because of, of how incredible and energetic, you know, these things are. Well, like, like we said earlier, I think these are arguably, and, and it's probably hard to argue otherwise, that, that these are arguably the most powerful single point engines in the universe are these supermassive black holes. The, the fact that they are so massive and have so much angular momentum and have such tremendous effects on the matter surrounding them means that these these have the potential to cause just tremendous outputs of energy. When we look at things like active galaxies, um, when we look at blazars, when we look at quasars, all of these we know are are powered by the same engine, the same type of engine, and that is a supermassive black hole that's millions or hundreds of millions or billions or even tens of billions, the mass of the sun, are uh, all condensed into one basically singularity uh, located at the centers of certain galaxies. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why they're so exciting, right? They're the most uh, consistently powerful energetic things you know, in our visible universe. And so that's why people get so excited about supermassive black holes. Um, and at the same time, I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why we're so motivated to try to figure out, you know, how are these things made? And, and how are they, um, how are they fed? You know, how do they get as bright as they do? And, you know, what I'm trying to answer is, you know, are there certain environments where they prefer to live, where they prefer to eat things and become really bright? Um, it, it's, it, you know, they're so exciting. And that's one of the reasons why so many people like me are, are studying them and trying to learn more about them. You know, one of the things that I, I worry about when you talk about this is um, when we think about the little black holes, the stellar mass ones, these are these are smaller, they're on smaller scales. We know that the event horizon, the size of the event horizon scales directly with mass. So if you have a black hole that's a million times more massive than another, that black hole's event horizon will be a million times larger in radius, and the light travel time across that black hole will be a million times greater. So we expect to see changes happening on much slower time scales for these big supermassive black holes as compared to the little ones. So when I look at a, a little black hole, I can watch it, you know, 
eat things over a, a human time scale, right? I can watch it, you know, turn on and off. I can watch it emit. I can watch the emissions go away. Uh, we call objects that do things like this microquasars. Uh, but you're you're interested in the bigger, larger things, and I always worry looking at, you know, a larger scale system like a supermassive black hole in a very massive galaxy and wondering, hmm, you know, it's such a frustration that we're only getting a snapshot of this that for the most part, you know, you might get flares and emissions, but the large structures, uh, these these only change on timescales that are much greater than a human lifetime. So I, I always worry when we do something like that, are we making life hard for ourselves by trying to look at all these different systems where we only get one snapshot each? Do we worry that we're putting together a coherent picture of them incorrectly based on that? Yeah, uh, yeah, you definitely hit the nail on the head there for... Um, one of the reasons why what I'm trying to do is really hard. <laughs> um, and so just to like back up a little bit before directly answering your question, um, one, of, one of the other big questions is whether there is a connection or a lack of connection between galaxy mergers and supermassive black hole activity. Um, so whether or not the black hole is accreting and is, you know, very bright, right? Um, and the it's an issue because a lot of different studies have shown a lot of different answers. So certain studies have gone out and you know looked at uh, various mergers and tried to figure out how many of those have really bright supermassive black holes and you know compared what they measured to systems that weren't merging, for example, to try to answer this question. And they found that mergers were most more likely to have really bright black holes. Um, other studies, on the other hand, showed that there, there was no difference between um, you know, mergers and non-mergers in terms of whether or not there was something uh, you know, brightly accreting at the center of the nucleus. And uh, one of the reasons there is this discrepancy between all of these studies um, is because the aging activity, like you said, it's a stochastic process, and it's it's believed to vary um, on you know timescales around ten to the seven years or so, which is obviously much larger than the human life. Um, and however, in in a, the grand scheme of things, those timescales are actually way way shorter than the merging timescale which is like hundreds of millions of years. And so um, there is uh, this discrepancy between all of your timescales. And at the end of the day, when you just, like you said, take a snapshot of some galaxy, you know, the probability of whether that AGN is going to be on or not, and, you know, whether or not that depends, you know, of it being in a merger is, is totally dependent on on where in time your snapshot took place, um, you know. So it's really hard because of all of these varying timescales and how they, they don't agree with one another to try to figure out how AGN activity depends on its environment. And um, 
that's one of the reasons why I'm investigating what I'm investigating. It's because we actually really don't know. And it's it's because of the the drastically different timescales of AGN and galaxy mergers and and other environmental processes happening in the galaxies. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good way to to put it in perspective. So thank you for sharing that, because we you know, one of the things I like to think about is, OK, if the universe uh instead of being 13.8 billion years long, if it was just, uh, if we shortened it and condensed it to like a human lifetime, like a hundred years, like optimistic human lifetime, a hundred years, uh, how long do these various processes take? And you could say, oh, well, if you want to say like a galaxy and another galaxy merge together, um, depending on the size of the galaxy and when this happens, this is something that might take a year of a human life if our li if the universe is a hundred human years long, or it might take a decade. Like these are these are processes that could take a long time. And then you're talking about like oh, an active galactic nucleus turning on or turning off. Well, you know, now we're looking at something that this takes maybe what, maybe a week, maybe a couple of weeks. This this is something that is really fast compared to these much longer timetables. And yet um, there are certain processes that some people uh, have argued, oh, like, Maybe this actually poses a problem for, like you said, how do you make and grow these supermassive black holes? Because if you calculate how long should this process take and you get something that's more than 100 years, um, boy, that, that would pose a problem for you, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, especially connects to um, like supermassive black hole seeding models, right? The question of you know, how do you grow something, you know, assuming that it was formed near the beginning of, you know, the universe's timeline, how do you grow it so that it gets to the sizes that we see it, you know, at, at the redshifts that we are seeing these things exist. Um, so, and that's a very uh, active field of research as well for supermassive black holes. Um, you know, there's a limit for how how much a supermassive black hole can accrete things. And it's called the Eddington luminosity. It's kind of a maximum uh, accretion luminosity uh, before the radiation from the supermassive black holes actually blows back everything that it's accreting. And so, you know, the question is, even if these things are accreting at the highest that they can, um, we're still not able to figure out how they're reaching masses that they are reaching you know, at, at, at the things that we're observing. So yeah, that's a huge area of, of research. Um, and it's, it's not, you know, we don't have an answer yet. No, and that's, and that's one of the fascinating things to me, because, uh, you know, some of the research I know that's going on in that is people say, well, okay, if I start with a seed black hole of just like a hundred or a few hundred solar masses early on in the universe, like when I form those very, very first stars in the first couple hundred million years, I could, I could grow this seed if you said I, I grow it at the maximum possible rate to maybe a few hundred million solar masses by time the universe is a billion years old. But we see 
black holes in excess of a billion solar masses before the universe is a billion years old. So how big does that mean those seeds are? Are they a thousand, ten thousand solar masses? Uh, what did the first stars, the ones that didn't have any metals in them that were all hydrogen and helium, how massive were they? Did they directly collapse to black holes? Could they have merged together early on to create an enormous seed? As far as I know, there are plausible explanations out there, but there really isn't a well, as far as I know, I'll just say uh, this is still an unanswered question where we see very large, very massive black holes at very early times that um, there is no consensus on what the resolution is except to say we're pretty certain that these ultra-massive, ultra-early objects do exist. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think what you said is correct. It's, um, it's, we don't have the full picture yet, right? And there's a couple different theories for, you know, what those seeds could be uh, in order to get some sort of supermassive black hole population uh, that we are seeing today in our visible universe. And, you know, it's likely that it's probably a combination of a couple of different you know, seeds, basically. It probably isn't just one answer. There's not just one mechanism that's going on to, to start the seeding for these supermassive black holes. It's probably a handful of things. But um, as of right now, it's really hard to nail down, you know, what what is the main black hole seeding mechanism? And, um, you know, what does that tell us about the universe at, at a really early age? You know, one of the one of the mechanisms that I've heard thrown about a lot is like, okay, yeah, you, you should. You should form stars. Those stars should give rise to black holes. Uh, those black holes should be parts of like primitive star clusters or maybe even proto-galaxies. And as we know, the galaxies we have today are big and massive and grew from both accreting matter from the intergalactic medium and growing that way, and also by merging together, where if you have a small galaxy here and a small galaxy there and they're close together, their mutual gravity will draw them in and they'll merge. Now, I've heard a couple of different versions of this story from a few different sources. Uh, some people say, you know, it shouldn't be a problem that these young proto-galaxies merge together, and if they each have a early seed of what will grow into a supermassive black hole, then you would expect from what we call a process called mass segregation, and I don't like this name, but as far as I know, there isn't a better name for it yet, um, where if you have a bunch of masses flying around in a region of space, what tends to happen is the lighter mass objects get gravitationally kicked out, and the heavier mass objects gravitationally sink to the center. So what you wind up with is a segregated population of masses where the more massive objects have sunk to the center and the less massive objects have either been pushed to the outskirts or rejected entirely, and people say, Oh, so it's not a problem to say, well, whatever your most massive things are, they're going to sink to the center, they're going to orbit one another, and they'll in spiral and merge. 
And then I've heard from other people, actually, this is a problem. This is a problem that we call the final parsec problem, because what happens is, yeah, these masses will sink to the center, and there'll be gas and other intervening matter, and these big supermasses will kick that matter out, will throw it away, will expel it, and they will spiral into one another, but there's a limit. Because once all that gas is gone and you do your simulations and you ask how close are these supermassive black holes to one another, you get something on the order of a light year or a parsec. And maybe it's a tenth of a parsec, maybe it's even a hundredth of a parsec, but those are still very big distances. Those are distances that some people argue it would take if all you did was have these masses orbit each other and gravitationally radiate, it would take longer than the age of the universe for these black holes to actually in-spiral and merge. And yet, we see they have no problem growing and being these monolithic, supermassive, billion-plus solar mass black holes in less than a billion years of cosmic time. Now, I... I mentioned something to you about this before we started recording, and you said to me something that surprised me a little bit, and you said, the final parsec problem is no longer a problem. And I would love for you to explain, not just to me, but to our listeners as well, um, why this isn't a problem, and if there's been a resolution, how it, this was resolved. Yeah. So... Yeah, you said a couple of things there that were really interesting. So I just want to further emphasize that, yeah, you're right. We do believe that mergers is probably one of the main ways for, for supermassive black holes to uh, to get more massive through time, right? Um, and so, um, so let me once again just back up a little bit. Um, so during the process of, of two galaxies merging, uh, and and thus the two supermassive black holes within those galaxies merging, um, you can kind of break up the process into three main components. And you know this is kind of a uh, uh, a very simplistic way to look at it. There's a lot of physics that goes on when galaxies and and black holes merge. But the first phase is kind of the dynamical friction phase. So here you have two galaxies merging. Um, the stars and the gas in the galaxies are, are feeling this drag force from the new material that it's interacting with, and the galaxies will, you know, lose energy uh, and angular momentum through through those those drag forces and, and through the dynamical friction. Um, and this will bring the two supermassive black holes closer to one another, um, and you know they'll eventually uh, reach separations where they become gravitationally bound. So the two supermassive black holes feel the gravitational forces from one another. Um, and at this part of the merger, um, you start getting into what is usually called the three body interaction phase, which is also not really a nice, <laughs> a nice title, but it's the phase of the merger where instead of you know, dynamical friction and, and drag forces on larger scales being the main mechanism of energy loss, the, the two black holes are actually losing energy by um, exchanging energy with nearby stars and gas. So um, what happens is gas and stars that are 
close enough to the supermassive black holes where they can exchange energy will kind of get slingshot out of the system um, and you know exchange energy with the system and the two black holes will will become smaller and, and smaller in, in separation so um this is the phase that should really carry the two supermassive black holes to small enough separations where gravitational wave radiation will dominate as the main mechanism of energy loss and and the, the two things will coalesce. So it's a really important you know phase, this, this the second phase where they're interacting with nearby gas and they're exchanging all of their energy with stars and kind of flinging the stars you know out of, of the area. Um, so it was shown uh, you know, analytically that for a given system of two black holes, there's, you know, a limit to that reservoir of gas and stars that they can exchange energy with. Um, and eventually that reservoir will run out and you will not have any stars and gas um, that, you know, are basically close enough to the supermassive black hole that will allow the, the system to continue exchanging energy with. And this tends to happen around a parsec. Um, and so it was coined the final, you know, parsec problem. And um, when I was starting graduate school, you know, seven or so, wow, that was a long time ago, seven or six hey, or hey, so Hey, speak years for ago. yourself. <laughs> Some of us were starting graduate school a couple of decades ago. <laughs> yeah, I, I realize. But um, it, it was a really, you know, popular topic, the final parsec problem, um, especially, you know, in, in, you know, supermassive black hole merger research. So in any case, um, you know, a lot of analytical, uh, you know, solutions and uh, assumptions for physical scenarios assume things like spherical symmetry, right? So in uh, the analytics that led to the final parsec problem, they were assuming things like a spherically symmetric gravitational potential for your galaxy. So you, in other words, a spherically symmetric, you know, galaxy where the, the matter is distributed in a spatially uniform way. Um, and so you can, it was shown that you can, you know, get around this final parsec problem if you, for example, assume a triaxial symmetry or just an asymmetric symmetry uh, in the in the distribution of your matter, which, you know, in fact, most galaxies, you know, are not spherically symmetric. Most galaxies do have some kind of asymmetry. Especially if you're talking about the gas and the normal matter and not just the dark matter. Yes, exactly. Um, so so that's one way that it was shown you can actually overcome the final parsec problem. You just have some kind of triaxial symmetry. Um, another way that it was shown you could overcome it was actually through gas inflows, which you expect during mergers. So here, gas from the outskirts of the galaxy are able through, you know, various, you know, um, torques and whatnot are able to be funneled into the central region where the two black holes are. And the black holes can then interact with that gas and continue moving on to smaller separations. Um, so there's, and I'm sure there's many other, you know, theories now that show other ways that that the two black holes can overcome this problem. So it's not so much a problem anymore, but I mean, it does just go to show that um, there's a lot of complications with getting two supermassive black holes uh, down to a separation where you expect them to merge. And even on the larger scales, so during, you know, the first phase that I talked about, the dynamical friction phase, it's now, you know, being starting, it's, it's now 
simulations, excuse me, have been starting to show that there are certain uh, mergers that even in the dynamical friction phase cannot get to small enough separations, you know, such that they can even try to overcome the final parsec problem because maybe the secondary galaxy doesn't have enough mass, doesn't have enough um, gas and stars in order for, you know, the dynamical friction, the drag force to drag it close enough to the center. So there are, um, there are so many issues <laughs> along the way, and it's very much dependent on the specific system that um, as an observer, you don't actually really know what to expect when it comes to the numbers of supermassive black hole mergers or um, how many supermassive black hole uh, merging systems do you expect to find at various separations? You know, do you expect them, you know, do, do you expect a lot of systems to, to even bypass the dynamical friction phase? It's kind of an open-ended question because we're very much reliant right now on, on what simulations tell us. Yeah, but, but observationally, when we look at these uh, galaxies with supermassive black holes inside, we don't tend to see evidence of tight binary supermassive black holes like there there are a few there are a few like oj287 is one that you know i think they have uh two black holes one's about a few tens of billions of solar masses and one's about 150 million solar masses and i think they orbit each other every 11 years or so um yeah. so like there are a few binary supermassive black holes that have this close separation. But as far as I know, most of the galaxies that have supermassive black holes in them, there's just one. So it sounds like you're telling me, look, we have multiple ways of solving the final parsec problem. And the list of a few ways that you gave me is probably not even exhaustive. But if you want to know specifically how do any two supermassive black holes merge during a galaxy merger? It's going to have an answer that's specific to that system. Yes, yes. Um, and so that's why I think it's important when one starts looking for evidence of uh, merging supermassive black holes, you have a very large sample because um, you want to cover a lot of parameter space. Um, in terms of, you know, the mass of your galaxies, the luminosity of your galaxies, the redshift range of your galaxies, just because um, the systematics are such that it's, it's likely going to be a unique story <laughs> for a lot of a lot of those systems. Um, one thing I also want to quickly note, just because you touched upon this is, uh, you're right that we don't have a lot of evidence for binary supermassive black holes. These are um, supermassive black holes that are in a later stage of the merger evolution. They're at really close separations. They are gravitationally bound, so they they feel the gravitational pull of the other black hole. Um, but one of the reasons why is is really a, an observing bias. It's really hard to resolve those systems because of how closely separated they are. Um, and so it's likely that you know if a supermassive black hole merger is capable of, you know, evolving all the way down to the smallest separations, there, there should be a lot more systems at those, you know, separations than, than what we've detected. But it's just really hard to detect them. Um, and, and that's the biggest issue right now. 
Boy, I, I sure hope we get some sort of large laser interferometer in space with super long baseline arms that, that might be able to see them. Do you, do you know of any hopeful projects that, you know, maybe someday we'll actually be able to see these things? <laughs> well, you might be talking about Lisa. Um, um, which, maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, which I am um, uh, incredibly excited about. Like you said, it's a huge uh, interferometer that's going to be in space. There's going to be lasers in space, right? Like how cool is that? Like I'm ta we're talking about Lisa, this laser interferometer space antenna where, you know, I'm just amazed that basically they have this plan of taking three satellites that are going to be trailing Earth's orbit. Um, they're going to be separated by like a million kilometers each. And as the spacecraft move around, like they drift through space and there are going to be all sorts of things pushing them around. Uh, so you are going to have these slow, drifty changes that happen. But then you also expect there will be these periodic changes because whenever any two masses in the universe orbit one another, they emit gravitational waves of a specific frequency and amplitude. And as those waves continue to pass through those three observatories and that triangle that they make, they're going to cause periodic shifts in the distances between those laser arms. So we might be looking for like nanometer differences over a length scale of like a million kilometers, but Lisa is actually going to be sensitive enough to measure those changes and say, because there's three spacecraft and you can do triangulation with three of them, that Lisa can say, oh yeah, like right over there at that point in space, this distance away are is a pair of supermassive black holes orbiting one another with this frequency and period. Yeah, it's 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 so exciting because you know, like you said, Lisa will be detecting can detect a supermassive black hole merger, the gravitational waves that are you know emitted by that merger, and you know this will be one of the first you know direct evidence that supermassive black holes merge. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's a separation scale that you can't resolve, you know, spatially with the other end of the electromagnetic spectrum, you really need gravitational waves to, to resolve that kind of merger. Um, so, so that will, I mean, the, you know, if slash when Lisa goes up to space, that first detection will be I mean, just the most incredible thing. I, I am so excited for a future Lisa. You know, we've had we've had a few really big detections because back when I was in grad school, they were building LIGO for the first time and not what we know as LIGO today. They were building like LIGO LIGO and what we have today was called Advanced LIGO and that was a project for like 10 years down the road. Uh, and LIGO started off as just like this proof of concept mission that we can get the noise floor this low and we can we can measure sensitivities down to this level and we can you know make our detector this quiet and this pristine and we can create a vacuum this good and and they did all that and then you know 15 years later what's happening is they're detecting their first black hole black hole merger 
with Advanced LIGO. And then just five years after that, we've got somewhere on the order of like a hundred of these merger events. Um, and in the meantime, we've also directly imaged the event horizon of supermassive black holes. And now we're talking about going and taking that next step and building a laser interferometer space antenna that can detect supermassive black holes merging, that can detect these much lower frequency, much slower time scale, much more massive mergers of objects. Um, and Lisa Pathfinder, which is basically the proof of concept for Lisa, that mission already went, it already succeeded, and now they're talking about launching Lisa in the next decade, like in the 2030s, which to me is like, man, I, I wish that a human lifetime wasn't so short, because if I'm excited by these developments now, you know, imagine where we'll be in 50 or 100 years and what we'll be probing then. And uh, I, I think it's really incredible that this science that was really just a dream a few decades ago is now we're right on the cusp of being able to do it directly and to actually catch them in the act of merging, which is something that we're pretty sure they must do, but there's a huge difference between being pretty sure it must do it and actually seeing and detecting it for yourself. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, like you said, I think the past, you know, 10 years has been one of the most exciting eras for supermassive black hole uh, researchers, you know, like while I was in grad school and and thinking a lot about merging supermassive black holes, you had the LIGO detection news starting to come out, you had the Event Horizon Telescope news come out, and you kind of, I mean, in my opinion, had the some of the first definitive proof that that black holes exist, even, you know, before that, we were kind of um, dependent on in, indirect you know, observational evidence. So, I mean, it's so exciting. And thinking about Lisa going up to space, like in what, you know, 12 to 15 years, I mean, that's absolutely mind boggling. And I hope that I'm, you know, still in the field at that point uh, to be able to like, to be able to see some of the Lisa data because that's just really, really exciting for me. Yeah, I I can't imagine. I also don't know unless you uh, unless you suddenly got overtaken with a passion to do something else. Why <laughs> why a scientist of your caliber would not be in the field? Because you are, as far as I'm concerned, you're you're crushing it as an early career scientist. Oh, that is that is very very kind of you, um, and nice to hear. But. Yeah, I, I honestly do also really hope that I, I'm still around in, in 10 to 15 years. The job market is rough, Ethan, so, yeah, so we'll have no, that, to see. Yeah, that's a thing that hasn't changed very much from when I was in grad school. There's a, yeah. there's a lot of competition for, for a very small number of permanent positions, but also like... Uh, to go to go back to the science a little bit, um, I know that one of the uh, things you're working on right now is not just like what happens at the centers of, you know, the mergers where these two supermassive black holes will spiral into each other, will merge, will accrete matter, will, um, you know, accelerate it. 
um, but also on the tremendous connection between these supermassive black holes and their environments, which include the entire host galaxy. And it amazes me that you can take something that is, you know, the size of, you know, maybe Jupiter's orbit around the sun, uh, depending on how big your supermassive black hole is in terms of mass, and you can say, okay, and things are going to happen in here, like matter's going to flow into it, uh, or accrete around it, or get accelerated by it, or maybe it'll cannibalize uh, some stars, or a star cluster, or a globular cluster, or maybe it'll merge with another galaxy, and it'll have a bunch of gas to eat. Um, and then you start seeing these emissions, these emissions coming out of this galaxy across the electromagnetic spectrum, sometimes spanning light years or thousands of light years or hundreds of thousands of light years in distance. And I've, I've even heard people speculate that you might be able to get, you know, basically a full million light years or in megaparsec territory um, you might get actual physical features that you can see that originate just from this tiny little solar system-sized supermassive black hole. Uh, and that in itself is amazing to me, but it's equally amazing to me that from really just a series of snapshots of different galaxies across the universe, you can learn a tremendous amount about what must be going on with these supermassive black holes inside. And I would love it if you would tell us a little bit about that research and and how you can use what you observe in these host galaxies to learn about the supermassive black holes at their centers. Yeah, so, you know, so the the connection between galaxy galaxy interactions and um, you know the triggering or the the presence of an accreting supermassive black hole, which you know we call AGN or active galactic nuclei, it's a matter of significant ongoing debate. Um, however, you know intuitively there's a lot of compelling reasons to expect a connection between, you know, the mergers of gas-rich galaxies and the accretion of material onto the supermassive black holes that are there. Um, and then, of course, you know, perhaps uh, those accreting supermassive black holes uh, trigger some sort of large-scale feedback, like a jet, and that will then affect the galaxy. So it's kind of this ongoing cycle of the galaxy environment affecting the accretion onto the black hole, which is then perhaps affecting once again, the larger scale properties of the galaxy. Um, and, you know, in fact, black hole growth and the rapid production of new stars in mergers is believed to, to give rise to really uh, well-known correlations between things like the black hole mass and, and various galaxy properties, like the, the, the stellar velocity dispersion or kind of the, the orbits of the, of the stars in the galaxy or other components like the mass of the bulge, which is kind of a central uh, star uh, rich area of the galaxy. So there's all of these correlations between a really, you know, small scale thing like the black hole mass and larger galaxy properties that people are measuring. And so we all think that it, it, it goes back to mergers where the galaxy on larger scale uh, 
uh, on larger scales is, is, is somehow interacting with the stock hole on smaller scales and vice versa. Um, that being said, and then, and I touched upon this a little bit earlier, um, observations have shown a drastically different uh, results on whether or not um, mergers affect the supermassive black hole activity. And it's really uh, due to the various biases that will creep in into any, any kind of survey that one does. So if you're trying to study the most uh, you know, the furthest, you know, uh, galaxy mergers in our universe or, you know, at a point that was really early on in the universe, you're going to be sensitive only to the brightest things because they're so far away. Your telescope will only be sensitive to really, really bright emission. So you're studying a population of, of mergers and supermassive black holes that are really bright and maybe, you know, not a good representation of, of galaxies and supermassive black holes, you know, as a whole. Um, on the other hand, if you only study relatively nearby systems, you're also going to be sensitive to a certain part of the population that doesn't really represent galaxies and, and supermassive black holes um, that were maybe present earlier on in the universe. Um, and then on top of this, which we already spoke about, the time scales are, are, are totally, uh, you know, in, in disagreement with one another. So a supermassive black hole might be really active for, for 10 million years, but the merger might take 100 million years. And so, you know, you have a quick snapshot and, and whether or not that supermassive black hole is, is eating a lot or not is, is really a probability game. <laughs> so, um, so the answer, the way to try to, to tackle all of these, these, complications is to have a really large sample um, and and try to look at sources across a really large range of redshift and also try to be sensitive to kind of the lower uh, luminosity things across that entire redshift range. And in that way, you're kind of lessening all of the biases that may creep in when you're trying to do this measurement. Um, all right. So that being said, that was kind of a, a large introduction. No, that was good, though. That was a good background. Thank you. Yeah. Um, what I've been doing is is looking for systems of merging supermassive black holes, um, mostly using X-ray observations. And the X-ray emission is coming from um, areas very close to the supermassive black hole. So, you know, right at the gravitational radius where, you know, light almost can't escape. It's at very, very small scales. And I'm trying to uh, connect whether or not a, a supermassive black hole is X-ray bright on those really small scales to the large global properties, you know, of, of the galaxies. And slowly, uh, you know, I've been finding that these large scale properties, like for example, levels of dust that are, you know, on kiloparsec scales or, you know, the full diameter of the galaxy scales, those levels are connected to how, uh, how you know, intense that X-ray emission is from the most nuclear scales of the galaxy. And it's kind of, um, supporting the idea that during mergers, you can perhaps have large scale uh, properties like gas and dust being able to be efficiently funneled to where the supermassive black hole can accrete. Um, but, you know, that being said, it's important to have as large a sample as possible. And so this is something that I'm trying to 
always build on. I'm trying to get larger and larger samples to make sure um, that I'm, you know, my results aren't affected by all of the biases that are, are known to be there. You know, that is that is so important. We those of you who've listened to many episodes of the Starts with a Bang podcast will recognize these discussions of bias because it is so dangerous. When you have a new tool, you are going to preferentially see more objects that are easy for the tool to see than you are the objects that are difficult for the tool to see. That does not give you an accurate reflection of what's accurately out there. In terms of we see the brightest one out there, we call that Malmquist bias. And that is a bias that I think we've known about since like the 30s or 40s, that this is this is a problem you can see just by looking with your eyes at the night sky. If you look at all the stars you could see with your eyes in the night sky, and say, oh, I'm going to categorize them. How many of these are blue stars? And how many of these are yellow? And how many are orange? And how many are red? You're going to find a lot of blue stars because the blue ones are inherently bright. But guess what? Only about one in a few hundred stars are intrinsically that blue. And yet uh, something like 10 to 20% of the ones you can see in the sky are that blue. Why? Because your eyes can only see down to a certain brightness and the brightness one, the brightest ones, you can see them when they're much, much farther away. The closest star to us, Proxima Centauri, you need, you can't even see them with binoculars. You need a pretty good sized telescope to be able to see it. But the brightest star in the sky, Sirius, it's nine light years away, uh, but it happens to be on the bluer side and on the brighter side. And the fact that it's so close and that blue uh, means that, yep, that's that's the brightest one. So when you're talking about supermassive black holes and you're talking about I have to look in specific wavelengths of light like x-ray light to actually see what I want to see about them like you're really going to be limited we don't have large wide field x-ray survey telescopes that can see the types of things you want to see all over the sky that's the sort of thing like okay if I no, I have a good galaxy candidate. I can tell my X-ray observatory to point at this and measure, but it's not like you can just go and say, oh, I'm going to look at the whole sky and grab all the ones that fit my parameters. Um, that is That is something that's beyond the scope of our current technology. And so as a result, you use the technology you have and that is inherently going to give you a biased sample that that you have to quantify that bias or or you're going to be drawing wildly incorrect conclusions. And even if you do quantify the bias, honestly, unless you've quantified it exactly correctly with the incomplete information you have, you're likely going to end up with some bias in your results anyway. And I've heard some people argue that that's already what we're seeing in the results and why the theory and the observations don't match as well as we would like. Yeah, I, it's definitely a function of, um, like you said, the, the bias that all of the surveys have and the different bias that they all have, right? They were all uh, structured differently, whether or not you are you know, targeting galaxy mergers via optical data or IR data, that's already 
you know, you're not going to be able to compare apples to apples if, if those are two surveys you're comparing. Um, another, you know, interesting point is how people define what an accreting supermassive black hole is in all of these studies. You can, you know, supermassive black holes emit across the entire electromagnetic wavelength for the most part. So you can search for evidence of accreting supermassive black holes using a lot of different wavelengths and um, you know, a supermassive black hole might be X-ray bright, but it might not be optical bright, for example. So, you know, not only will these biases creep in into what you're measuring, but you have to be careful when comparing your results to other results that you understand very well what you did and you also understand very well what they did and how that might, you know, introduce some kind of discrepancy between the two. So one of the things that I think would be a fascinating thing to be able to learn or to be able to speak intelligently about um, at the end of the day is when we look at our own galaxy, when we look at the, you know, small size supermassive black hole that we have in ours and we see the different types of electromagnetic emissions that we see, like we see these enormous Fermi bubbles in our galaxy, um, you know, can we trace back our galaxy and its supermassive black hole's history to learn, are there, what were the mergers that occurred? What were the growth events that occurred? What were the activity events that occurred in our past? Is that something we have a realistic hope of recovering with enough data or is most of that too far gone in the universe's past now? And being that we only exist in the here and now, are there not enough of the survivors left to reconstruct that story? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm not sure what the, the best way to answer that is. So I think that, um, I think that looking at the electromagnetic radiation of of Sagittarius A star, which is the, the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way, does, you know, does give us kind of a, a, a good understanding of what kind of black hole it is, right? So it's relatively quiescent. It's it's not a super bright accreting supermassive black hole. If someone, you know, in a galaxy far away was also trying to to find new supermassive black holes in space, they would likely not detect you know, Sagittarius A star. It's a really low luminosity, supermassive black hole. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, detecting things like the Fermi bubbles, for example, does give you some understanding of maybe the merger history of what happened to the Milky Way in the past. Um, but I think that, and I, I say I think here, um, and hopefully this isn't completely incorrect, but I think that a lot of our understanding about um, the Milky Way's history uh, comes from actually observations of other galaxies. So kind of understanding how galaxies just evolve on average as a whole, and then also simulations. So, so I think it goes in both directions, you know, direct observations of our own supermassive black hole does fill in some of the gaps for supermassive black hole evolution, but we're also kind of dependent on observations of other Milky Way-like type galaxies out there to, to kind of fill in other holes that we that we don't, you know, we can't get from just direct observations. 
No, and that makes sense too. It's sort of like if you want to know what's going to happen to a human being over its life, you don't just look at yourself. You look at your relatives and you look at people who've lived and died and come before you and you look at like this larger suite of data that's out there because working with the one data point you're interested in is limited because you're only getting a limited amount of data from that one point. Um, and we have a lot of analogous systems out there that honestly, the idea of analogous systems, um, that is something that I don't think gets emphasized enough about how powerful of a tool it is for learning about an object in the universe to study other objects in that same class of object. And maybe maybe the most powerful example to me is when we talk about these supermassive black holes in spiraling and merging that, you know, we've never observed before. But we know so much about that physics from general relativity and from what LIGO has already seen. Because the physics of a supermassive black hole merger and a stellar mass black hole merger is exactly the same. Like, mass is one parameter in the equation, but that's it. You change the mass and you change the radius and all the other physics is completely known. So if you if you can say, hey, I've never observed a supermassive black hole merger before, but I know exactly what the waveform should look like and I know exactly what sort of gravitational forces and torques it should exert on its environment and I know how it should accelerate and heat any matter that accretes on it. Like All of these are known things because of the incredible power of looking at and examining um, you know, analogous systems. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, and I, you know, I worry that at the beginning of this podcast, I maybe was negative on, on stellar mass black holes. But uh, and I didn't mean to be I mean, the, the detections that LIGO has had, I mean, I think is something that is just going to, you know, further support Lisa going into space, right? We have proof now that that compact objects merge. And so like you said, that should be happening on larger scales as well. Um, and I think what LIGO has done is really paved the path for uh, future gravitational wave observatories like LISA. Um, you know, there's the pulsar timing arrays, which is a, a, a completely different science, but that's also here on Earth trying to detect gravitational wave events from supermassive black holes. Um, you know, the work that the LIGO uh, team has done has has been just, you know, has completely changed the course <laughs> of, of supermassive black hole research. So yeah, definitely. I mean, I would go even farther and say it's completely changed what we think of as astronomy. The idea oh, yeah. that we don't need a telescope, that we don't need to gather light, that we can instead look at this profoundly new, fundamentally new type of radiation that is radiation traveling through the fabric of space-time like it's ripples in the fabric of space-time itself uh, and we can measure them like this is an observational science it it's got to be just as profound as discovering that there is a night sky and you can see objects with your eyes like that's i 
it's been transformative and it's it's happened in our lifetimes and we'll we'll never go back there is a fundamentally new type of astronomy going on now called gravitational wave astronomy and yeah it's probably time to build our second class of gravitational wave uh observatories now that we've done the relatively short baseline ground-based incarnation that can see you know things with a frequency of about one hertz now it's time to go and see things that are at about you know millihertz no the other way no the first way millihertz frequencies yes yes <laughs> yes you're correct um <laughs> Yeah, I, I think you're right that when saying, you know, gravitational wave research is now its its own field entirely, right? Gravitational wave astronomy. And I think the really cool thing about it is that, you know, as an observationalist, I am, you know, or, you know, others as well, we're trying to think of ways to connect our, our optical and, and IR and X-ray observatories with the future detections of these gravitational wave observatories, right? So now people are, you know, thinking about what what kind of connection can we make with our ground-based, you know, optical telescope with future LISA detections. And it's kind of funny because it's like the, the gravitational wave detections are now dictating what we want to observe, you know, as an afterthought. And so, yeah, it's just completely changing the way that we think about a mission in space, right? It doesn't all have to be <laughs> something that a, a telescope can detect via photons. Um, it can very much be an interferometer. Um, and I just think it's so cool. Yeah, but there's so many unanswered questions at the same time. Like, let me give you an example. Uh, you look up at all these different galaxies. Galaxy surveys are something that uh, we've done well enough, far enough, deep enough that these are, uh, some of them now are less biased than they used to be. We can see lots of faint and bright and mid-sized galaxies at a variety of redshifts, at a variety of ages of the universe, um, and we can get them in enormous numbers. Uh, I still don't think you can tell me, hey, if we restrict ourselves to galaxies in the process of merging, where is the best place to look for candidate gravitational wave signals? Do you want something in the early stage of a merger? Do you want something where the star formation due to a merger is at its peak? Do you want something where the merger is already starting to settle down? Do you want something where uh, the star forming gas has been expelled? I don't think we know enough just yet about what type of in the process of merging galaxy we should be looking at if we want to see supermassive black holes that are going to be merging you know roughly today but this is also the sort of thing that people like you are actively researching to try and give us some answers to that and uh as far as i understand it there are some i I guess I'll say you were a little down on indirect measurements of supermassive black holes a little bit earlier in the podcast because we don't have to rely on them now because we have the direct measurements. But aren't these indirect measurements that you're doing maybe our best window right now into sort of understanding 
how black hole mergers and the host galaxies might be connected? Oh, yeah. Yes, you are completely right. And, you know, uh, hopefully I wasn't too down because that's my research, right? <laughs> I'm not working with gravitational waves. Let me just say what, you know, observational uh, x-ray observations of supermassive black holes are the best way to find them right now. Um, yeah, so I think so touching on a few points that you that you mentioned, um, as of right now, you know, the number of um, so they're called a dual AGN. These are active galactic nuclei or creating supermassive black holes that are in the process of merging, but they're still in that first dynamical friction phase. So they're not uh, gravitationally bound yet. Um, it's an earlier phase of the merger. They're the easiest to find because they have large separations. So, you know, if you go out with your telescope and you're trying to resolve two things, it's easier to find things that are, you know, have larger separations than, than things that are, are closer together. Um, so in any case, you know, we think that these dual AGN are a result of galaxy mergers. And we, we know that there are so many galaxy mergers out there. Like you said, we have a really good idea of, you know, optically how many mergers there are, you know, through time even. We've kind of measured a, a merger rate, uh, you know, up to pretty large redshift values, so pretty far back in the universe. However, you know, to date, there's about 40 or so confirmed dual AGN. <laughs> so we don't really have a good idea at all um, about the, the, the population of these accreting and merging supermassive black holes. We don't have a large number of them. And we definitely do not know how, uh, how that number evolves with time. So how, how it's expected to increase or decrease as you go back into earlier and earlier uh, epochs of, of the universe. And so that is one thing that I am trying to, to do currently. And I think that once we have a better idea of kind of how you know, that that rate changes and evolves over time, we'll have a better idea of what to expect then with things like LISA. Um, because, you know, like you said, right now, we really do not know <laughs> how many are out there. We really do not know the time scales of evolution. Like we talked about earlier, there's so many complications as these things are evolving. Um, and so we really don't know what to expect quite yet when it comes to what we're going to be detecting via gravitational wave events. You know, you've you've got my mind going in a direction that I wasn't expecting it to go. So I'm just going to ask you before I lose it. Um, what does it feel like to know that you have like this capability now of making predictions, putting ideas out there, formulating theories about, you know, how something like the supermassive black hole merger rate should evolve with time, with cosmic time, um, knowing that this is not something we can measure today, but perhaps 15, 20 years from now, we will be measuring it. Like what, what does it feel like to, to be able to say, okay, here's what we know today. Based on what we know today, here are some things that we might expect. Um, and and to know, like, this is what you might think of as idle speculation today is actually going to be directly testable 
in you know a generation or less um does that does that make you feel powerful does that make you feel like oh my gosh like this pressure of having to get it right now like this is what people are going to remember my field for is either how we nailed this thing decades in advance or how we botched it so unbelievably badly that we were we might as well have been looking at the bottoms the soles of our feet for uh supermassive black hole mergers <laughs> that's a good question you know some days i'm I am so excited. I mean, you know, what I'm currently doing uh, at Stanford is I'm I'm like literally with, you know, a team of, of other students that I am so excited to work with, you know, analyzing, um, you know, hundreds approaching thousands of, of supermassive black holes and their X-ray emission across a wide range of redshift and then trying to nail down how it evolves as a function of time. And so some days I, I'm so excited because it's something that hasn't been done yet because, you know, one of the reasons being the enormous amount of work that it is um, and just how it, it will possibly impact maybe expectations when it comes to gravitational wave signals. Other days, uh, I'm completely overwhelmed <laughs> because, like I said, there's, you know, uh, hundreds to thousands of these things that we're analyzing. You have to be so careful with your measurements. You have to be very careful with understanding where in parameter space you're sensitive to. You have to be very careful with any results that you come out with, right? So, so that aspect of it is slightly overwhelming, but, um, you know, I would say half of the time I'm so excited and half of the time I'm worried, you know, and making sure that we're not making any mistakes just because I want to make sure that, um, you know, it's a multi-year project, but, but when we do have some better constraint on, on how this, merging AGN fraction evolves with time that we're, you know, we're putting out the best work that we can, um, just because I think it will have a high impact, you know, for the gravitational wave field. You know, I think it's also interesting to look ahead to when Lisa comes online, um, it's not going to come online in a vacuum. We're going to have better x-ray observatories active than we do today. Um, we know that uh, the European Space Agency is going to build and launch the Athena telescope, which will be far more powerful and higher resolution um, than either Chandra or XMM-Newton is today. We know that uh, the proposed Lynx mission was just recommended to... Uh, possibly be constructed during the 2040s um which will be a little after lisa but if that's the next mission to fly after um whatever the next generation infrared optical ultraviolet observatory is that could be a james game changer as well and we also know that uh the decadal survey recommended that we may want to consider building sort of an intermediate x-ray observatory to complement athena be next generation to chandra but also to come online much more quickly than something like lynx would do you um look ahead to some of these upcoming x-ray observatories and think, ooh, it's going to be so exciting that I'm going to be able to learn ba 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 this 
over what we know today? Like, what what are the things you're excited about? Hey, we're going to be able to learn this, and that's going to teach us uh, some really important stuff. Yeah, well, there's there's so much, right? So I, let me just say, I love links. <laughs> I, um, I really, I genuinely hope that some sort of links goes into space someday. Um, links, so Chandra right now is the one X-ray observatory that has the best angular resolution. So you can spatially resolve things that are very close as compared to other X-ray observatories that are in space. Um, Athena, which I'm also very excited about, will not have an angular resolution as good as Chandra. Um, it will be worse. However, you know, that being said, Athena is going to have uh, a really big field of view. It's going to find a lot of X-ray sources that, you know, observatories like Chandra aren't able to detect. Um, but Lynx is, is super cool because its angular resolution or its ability to resolve things on really small scales will be better than Chandra. Um, and so when you have x-ray instruments go up into space with a higher angular resolution, you can resolve, uh, you know, two things, two x-ray point sources or two supermassive black holes at way smaller separations. Um, and so, you know, moving forward, as we go into higher res x-ray observation, x-ray observatories, excuse me, you will be able to find um, a, a large part of the dual Aegean population that we just aren't even sensitive to right now. So links will be able to resolve, you know, depending on how close or far away you're you're looking at a system, you know, supermassive black holes that are pretty late in their merger phase. And that will, you know, give us a lot of insight on the time scales for those late stage merger phases that we're just not really uh, sensitive to right now. Um, so, you know, fingers crossed that some kind of links goes up uh, during my career. As an astronomer, I really would like love to get my hands on some links data. All right. So to uh, to boil the ocean there for a second, you're basically saying like, look, there are AGNs out there, active galactic nuclei out there right now that are putting off radiation that we're observing them. And quite probably some of them are actually dual engine AGNs, that there are two supermassive black holes in there, and we cannot tell that there are two supermassive black holes in there because we don't have good enough angular resolution. And Athena will be wonderful for a lot of things, but will not help us with that. Links will. And that is part of the reason why building links is such an exciting prospect for you, is that we could actually see, get a window into these, you know, supermassive black hole pairs that could be powering some of these active galaxies. Um, they could be out there right now, and we just don't know it because we aren't looking with good enough tools. But this should be a good enough tool to see that at long last. Yes, yes. So for the dual AGN community, <laughs> Lynx is, is so exciting because like you said, it will be able to find resolve closely separated things that we don't have the capability of resolving right now you know and that's that's really where we're limited in finding merging supermassive black holes if you want to 
detect the emission associated with each of them. You have to be able to resolve the two areas of emission. So you're totally uh, limited on the angular resolution of your telescope, whichever telescope and whichever wavelength you're using. So Lynx is gonna be able to really push us towards the, the smallest separated, you know, accreting supermassive black holes, which is just really, really exciting to think about. Yeah. Also, I have to say, I, I love the people in the Lynx co collaboration. Every time I uh, every time I talk to Grant Tremblay, I wind up more excited about x-rays than I was previously. Yeah. And he's done a lot of really uh, good like PR for Lynx as well. You know, he's like developed all of the beautiful illustrations associated with Lynx. So um, he's always a great person to talk to if you want to get excited about Lynx. Yeah, and also like you, he's uh, younger than me. So when I look to like the future of astronomy, I'm like, oh, good. Like there's some good junior people here who are going to like carry the torch forward far into the future, and that's that that's fantastic. That's you know never something I'm worried about, but always something I'm excited to see. <laughs> that's that's very very kind of you. Yeah, I agree. Grant is a really really great person. So if I'm if I'm thinking, you know, okay, I think this is interesting and I want to know what should I be looking at um, over the next decade, like in the X-ray to learn about supermassive black holes. So before Lisa goes up, before Lynx goes up, what are some of these big puzzles that we should be thinking about holistically in terms of, okay, if you're thinking about these problems with supermassive black holes and merging them and seeing what they're like when you have two of them versus one of them um, and how they feedback and affect the host galaxy or what properties the host galaxy might have that can inform me about these supermassive black holes. You talked about statistics as tremendously important. Um, what are the types of things that you would say, okay, there should be all of these different things out there. Here's why getting better statistics is so important. Yeah, so the statistics is important um, for a couple of reasons. So so one, uh, the like I said, the rate of, uh, of dual AGN uh, at a given redshift, so at a given time in the universe, and also as a function of redshift, um, is is unconstrained. Um, so uh, observationally, there is one data point for what kind of the rate of dual AGN should be, and it's at a relatively low redshift range because observationally you are constrained <laughs> to, to things that are closer to you because they are brighter and whatnot. Um, but there have been predictions from simulations. And, you know, I worry to go in, into depth about the simulations just because there are so many different kinds of simulations, um, a lot of different assumptions that go into those simulations. Um, but, you know, the big ones are like illustrious and eagle. And so in any case, 
people who work on large-scale simulations can also try to predict what's, what this rate is or how many dual AGN you might expect as a function of redshift. Um, and the issue is that uh, a lot of the results don't agree with one another. So it's completely you know, unconstrained and there's really large error bars. Um, and so a way to, to make your error bars smaller is to have a really large sample. Um, so, you know, for a given assumed fraction of a, of a dual AGN rate, the, the more things that you have within that bin, the, the smaller your error bars are going to be. So you really want to have as many things as possible to analyze in order to make sure that you can really constrain, you know, what, what that rate is at a given redshift. Um, but, you know, that being said, besides large samples and statistics, Something else that I think is really important to not only understanding how many dual agents there are, but you know, understanding the environmental uh, properties of these these dual agent systems is a multi wavelength analysis. So I, I strongly believe that you know you you shouldn't just do this analysis with X rays, although I love X rays and X rays are the best rays. But you you definitely want to have optical coverage for most of your systems. You definitely want to have infrared coverage for most of your systems. It would be great if you had a radio emission. Um, the reason being that, you know, all of these different wavelengths are not only going to tell you more about the environmental properties of the galaxy, but they will also tell you more about your supermassive black holes. Um, and so it's really, really important that not only do you have a large sample, but you have really good coverage across the multi-wavelength spectrum. I mean, it is amazing to me that, you know, we we just talked about how, okay, this thing might happen on 10 million year-esque timescales, um, and yet we're talking about the moment of a merger where we can, in fact, treat it like it's its own transient event. Um, and that, like, how powerful is that as a leap for astronomy to go for, okay, yeah, this thing's on and it'll be on for 10 million years, or this thing's off and it'll be off for 10 million years. And then we can peer inside and we can say, oh, and by the way, like, and here's the in spiral and it's going to merge, right? <laughs> and then now, and you can do that. You can do that with Lisa. Um, like, I I think I'm not doing a good job of communicating how impressive of a feat this actually is, where we can talk about not just doing this, but predicting it and knowing like, okay, the merger is going to happen here. Go and train all your ground and space-based observatories on this point in space uh, and let's watch it unfold. And we'll actually be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's mind boggling, right? Like, it's, I can't even imagine ever living in a world where that could happen. <laughs> it's like, so exciting. And I think that another exciting aspect of it, and you know, I hope uh, a Lisa person doesn't call me out for being completely wrong with my numbers here. But I think uh, on a more uh, an optimistic perspective on like the rate, like how many of these things we expect to detect, um, you know, if we make some assumption like every galaxy in the universe should undergo at least one major disruptive merger, we expect something like 100 massive black hole mergers per year. So like, you know, whether or not Lisa is sensitive to all those mergers is very dependent, you know, on 
the redshift distribution and whatnot. But I mean, can you expect and um, no, or can, can you imagine undergoing that process of like a black hole is about to merge? Let's get some observational data like multiple times a year, because I cannot, and I just think that that is so exciting. I mean, we we normally think about these event rates of things being totally out of reach, but this to me is one of the most glorious things about gravitational wave astronomy compared to conventional astronomy. When you detect something in electromagnetic astronomy, when you use light, the relationship between brightness and distance is that the brightness falls off as one over the distance squared. So if something's twice as far away, it's going to appear a quarter as bright. If something's 10 times as far away, it's going to appear only 1% as bright. And if something's a thousand times farther away, it's going to appear a millionth as bright. Um, which means that in astronomy, in optical, infrared, x-ray, whatever your wavelength, astronomy, if you want to see farther and farther away, you really need much more light gathering power. That's that's a huge obstacle. It doesn't work the same way in gravitational wave astronomy because in gravitational wave astronomy, you detect things based on the strain amplitude or the shear amplitude. And that only falls off as one over the distance, not one over the distance squared. So if you say to me, hey, Ethan, I've developed this gravitational wave detector that can detect supermassive black hole mergers up to... Uh, you know, 400 million light years away. I say, that's wonderful. Make it a hundred times more sensitive and you'll be able to grab a million times the volume. You'll be able to grab the entire observable universe. And that's legit what the plan of Lisa is. Lisa, and I think some people are even talking about this for a possible next generation of LIGO, is why why wouldn't we because of how things scale why wouldn't we go for that extra order of magnitude in sensitivity because if we do that increases the volume we can probe by a thousand because it's a factor of 10 in the length and the width and the depth directions overall you know volume is is a distance cubed um you make something 10 times more sensitive, you get a thousand times the volume. And that one fact is the only reason that I actually can imagine, oh my God, we might, if we estimate there are a hundred of these in the universe, it is not a far off pipe dream that maybe we'll be able to measure all 100 every year. Yeah, I mean... I, I need to join the Lisa team, right? Like I wanna get my hands on some of that data. I, I mean, it just sounds incredible. And I think that, um, you know, one of, the, one of the interesting aspects of it is that you're not gonna be able to get follow-up for that high density of, of gravitational wave events, right? And so the, you're gonna have to start getting really creative with your interpretation of a lot of those those Lisa events. It'll be you know really hard to get radio follow-up of all 100 per year unless we dedicate one radio telescope only to Lisa detections, which I think the astronomy community wouldn't be happy about. Um, but but in any case, it's just um, it's it is so exciting to to really think about having that much data at your hands and trying to think about the possible physics that that could result in that underlying you know gravitational wave signature and 
yeah, man, I'm just really excited. Well, there's a whole lot to be excited for, and I really want to thank you for sharing your excitement with me and with our listeners today. Uh, before we part ways, I'd like to ask you, um, are there any final thoughts you have that you would like to share with everyone out here? <laughs> oh, man, that's a big question. Um, I guess. I would just first off say that supermassive black holes are incredibly cool. And, um, you know, as an observer, there's a lot more to them, you know, beyond uh, string theory and and the general and uh, special relativity that a lot of people think about when it comes to black holes. You can actually learn a lot about them and a lot of the physics related to them by just uh, looking at their environments and and trying to understand you know, put together uh, the pieces between small scale physics and large scale physics. And also that x-rays are the best rays. <laughs> Maybe we should cut that latter part. <laughs> no, no, you're all in on that. X-rays are the best rays. And uh, certainly I'll put them over N-rays any day. So way to go. Way to go, x-ray people. You've got a strong advocate here. And thank you, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, this has been a fascinating look into supermassive black holes uh, from seed to the entire uh, environment around them, from from tiny singularity scales to event horizon scales to uh, in spiral and merger scales, all the way up to scales of the full galaxy that encompasses them and beyond. Uh, thank you to Dr. Adi Ford for being our guest today, and thanks to all of you out there for tuning in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters, and I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to Brian Kinsella, Chad Marler, Jeffrey David Maricini, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Jakutas, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Stefan Bernegger, William Blair, Andy and Wall, Brian Terry, Danny, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Jerry Wilterding, John Kozura, Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez-Garcia, Judith Delmar, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafael Wojcik, Sean Foley, Vlad Pashkovsky, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andres Chovanek, Andrew Jason, Arnulfo Zapeta, Benhead, Bob Unger, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Christoph Hip, Dan Steelen, Darren Redford, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nader, Glenn McDavid, Hellbender, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Terzakian, Steve Shaber, Stuart Lending, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vanden Heuvel, and Yunko S. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. Starts with a bang.